1: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW reporting were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Broadway Podcast Network presents Giants in the Sky How Sondheim and Lapine Went Into the Woods with me, Ben Rimmelauer. Today's guest, John Bell, Sondheim's intern at the Old Globe. Once upon a time. <laughs> John Bell was Stephen Sondheim's intern on the Old Globe production of Into the Woods. He is the author of Elaine Stritch, The End of Pretend, co-author of Score, Music Theory for Musical Theater, and has contributed to other books and periodicals, including the Sondheim Review. A librettist and composer, his musicals River Run Deep and Making Home have been produced regionally, and he is a professor of performing arts at DeSales University. ¶¶ I was so thrilled when I got the email from Paul Ford saying that uh, you had uh, gotten in touch with him because you loved his book, uh, which we must give a shout out to. Uh, Lord knows at least I was there all about his many years working on Broadway shows, especially those with Stephen Sondheim, including Into the Woods, and um, that he said that you had uh been a student uh and been working uh with Sondheim on the uh uh, the old globe into the woods and of course I was a fan of your book The End of Pretend about your years uh with Elaine Stritch thank you um it was really uh such a treat for me to get to talk to you at all and this especially um because, of course, I had no idea about your involvement uh, in this early incarnation of Into the Woods. So I'd love to just pick your brain about it.
0: Well, you know, um, involvement in the early incarnation probably makes it sound grander than it was. I was, had just gone out to San Diego to join the MFA musical theater program out there at San Diego State and uh, realized that one of the requirements of the program was that you had to have a professional internship. And lo and behold, and I didn't know this, I had already established a relationship with Sondheim a few years earlier, and he knew I was, you know, going out to California to start this degree. And lo and behold, literally the day that I arrived in San Diego, the San Diego newspaper announced that um, Sondheim and Lapine and their new Broadway bound musical was coming to Uh, to the old globe. And so I'm like, Eureka, this is it. So uh, I arranged to have a a production assistantship with Sondheim at the old globe and was the envy of all my incoming MFA uh, friends. So I was a student in the room, uh, an observer, a gopher, you know, lowest man on the totem pole, but it was such a great learning experience for me to see how a show was put together.
1: So, I mean, and not just any show. Um... (laughs) Yeah and uh you know i i have found in my conversations with uh various people involved in into the woods um that of course the people who were younger at the time uh for various reasons often remember a lot of the minutia that i'm looking for better uh partly because they're younger now so uh, that just helps with memory and also um you know these formative experiences when it's you know all new and and uh really you know imprint on our our brains so i I'm, I'm hoping you can just um give me sort of the play by play i mean you find out that you need an internship uh you know how did you go about approaching uh what did you go directly to Sondheim? What had you already been like a fan who'd like written with him? Yeah, I'd written with back him. and
0: forth with him and he had invited me to New York and I got to meet him at his house and then got to see a production, uh, production the original production, a uh, performance of Sunday in the Park with George with him. And so we sort of struck up a, an acquaintanceship, I would call it. I wouldn't call it friendship, but an acquaintanceship. And yeah, so when it was time for the internship and I realized he was coming out there, I did. I just called him and I said, I need an internship and I just want to do it with you. And his initial response was that, you know, the work that he does is so private and internal as a composer that he doesn't really need a production assistant and he typically doesn't have production assistants Um, but you know I think he understood that it was you know something I needed as a requirement for my program so he suggested that I contact the Old Globe um, with his permission to say that I've spoken to Sondheim I have this nation relationship with him and so I contacted the Old Globe and the Old Globe says okay well you Sondheim, you've got Sondheim's Blessing. So it really developed as a two-pronged internship. One was I was working with the Old Globe's education department. They were going to send a small company of non-cast actors from the show out into the schools as an educational component of this upcoming Broadway premiere or premiere musical. So the idea was that I would work with that company and in return, of course, I'd have access to rehearsals so that when I worked with that company, I could make sure that what they were putting together would funnel off of what was actually developing in the show. And so once the, the old globe was okay with that, then sometimes like, yeah, hey, you're into rehearsals. Come on in and you can sort of sweat coffee for me or take music down to Tildy in the basement so Matilda Pincus um, can do all the copying. So was, I
1: just sort of slid into it with two prongs, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay, first of all, you're blowing my mind. There was a company of um, non-cast actors who were going to schools performing material from into the woods. Yes.
0: And it was a company of four, two men and two women. And they were some of the local San Diego actors that I think had been engaged with the Globe. I don't know if they were equity or not um and there i they did this for all the shows at the old globe they created sort of a, an education guide and they offered the schools to bring this company of four in just to give them samplings or a taste of what their production would be
1: and the hopes that they'd bring buses of kids to see the shows. And, so, and this so- is years ahead of Into the Woods Jr. or any of the stuff that we have now. So was it, was it like a 20 minute version, a 40 minute version? It was like one of something like
0: that. I couldn't tell yeah. you exactly now. And, you know, we were able to do, and this was where my, attendance at rehearsals was helpful because we were allowed to do small snippets of a few of the songs Mm. with some structured narration just to sort of give the school kids a sense of and their teachers what they'd be getting so that was the fun part which is getting my hands on the music being able to come in and and sort of straddle both of those those performance readiness spheres
1: Amazing. Okay. And so just to make you back up one more time, and because I'm, of course, dying to go forward too, but when you, did I understand correctly that you went to see Sunday in the Park with George, just you and Sondheim, he just took you to a performance?
0: Well, that story, you know, I tell this story to my students now a lot. Um, I When I was in college, I did a production of Side by Side by Sondheim, and it was my first introduction to his work, and I just was blown away by it. So when the production was over, I wrote him a typical fanboy letter, and, you know, the letter was, I love you, I love your work, I think you're writing just for me, you know, all the stuff that all of us Sondheim, Sondheads say about him, right? And he sent me back a nice letter saying, you know, that he was moved by the my remarks and that if I was ever coming to New York, here's my phone number. So, of course, I called his phone number and arranged a trip to New York. Uh, I was about 18. I just entered college. I'd never been outside of central Ohio, which is where I grew up. I'd certainly never been to New York. And so I went with my mother that summer in between my freshman and sophomore year. And we met him at his house. And he was very gracious. um, And then unbeknownst to us, he had alluded that he would arrange tickets to Sunday in the Park with George because Sunday in the Park with George had just opened. And um, unbeknownst to us, after our meeting with him at his house pre-Curtain, he accompanied us to Sunday in the Park with George. And so we had this wonderful, glorious sort of opportunity to see that show with him and um you know it was a night that
1: just changed my life and was that still the original cast it was mandy and bernadette the whole bit yeah amazing and amazing. so now had at that point did you still only know his work via side by side so it was all new material to you i'm a pretty strong researcher and i immediately once he i made the <laughs> yeah. connection with him
0: i started researching everything listening to everything oh great okay just, just immersed myself completely
1: yeah wonderful and um I mean, I don't know, like, I think it might be different if if we went with Sondheim, but I don't think my mom would have necessarily fully appreciated standing in the Park with George. Like, what was that experience like for you?
0: Oh, uh, well, and all I can say is, you know, the act one closer with the, the painting being recreated, Yeah, you just picked us all three of us off the floor, including Sondheim who was crying, you know, as wow. he was watching it. and he'd seen it a million times, of course, Wow, but it was just, just really transcendent and spiritual and artistically mm. alive in ways that you just, it, I certainly hadn't experienced as a young kid at that time, yeah. kind of in yeah. the theater, you know?
1: amazing and i mean did he take you backstage did you meet anyone in the cast anything like that um
0: we did we had an opportunity to meet the cast members and you know it was it was it was kind of like you know <laughs> we're following him around and he's yeah. graciously introducing us he's doing the lovely host thing and um people were kind, but they were like, who are these two people? You right. Know? <laughs> but they were they were kind to
1: us because Sondheim was introducing us. So he he made it a magical night. And so um with that experience behind you, did you have uh a little bit more comfort than you might have going into your first were you there for the very first rehearsal for the did you come to New York for the old globe rehearsals in New York? No. I didn't.
0: I didn't even really know about Into the Woods. All the research I was doing, I wasn't even aware that a new musical was in the works. Um, it wasn't truly till I got off off the plane the first day. What do you do when you come to a new city? You pick up the local newspaper. I picked up the yeah. local newspaper, and there was the announcement that Sondheim was coming with the new musical. And you can imagine what that what that meant in my mind. Yeah. If I know him if I can get in on this I get to watch one of these shows that I love of his from the beginning I mean it just blew me away
1: and at that point were you wanting to be a director or what what was your career aspiration at that point
0: I think like everybody at that age I I saw myself as a performer Uh, I was training continuing to train in my skill set and would go on to do some performing but because I was deeply affected by some keen teachers along my way. I also knew that I wanted to teach, which is why I was pursuing the MFA and um, a- anticipated that that would lead to directing. Uh, I also had an undergraduate degree in music. And and so I was also very interested in being a music director and a yeah. character as
1: well. So those are all things that- Renaissance I, man. Yeah, now I, I keep interrupting did. you. So now I'm losing the thread. So the- you were you came to New York uh, before you finished the MFA program. Am I mixing things up?
0: I came to New York before I even started the MFA program. Wait, I was, when you saw
1: was... Sunday in the Park, yes but, yes, but when you but so you were still in San Diego yeah. when you uh, did the Into the Woods internship.
0: Yes, absolutely. The whole internship was with the Old Globe production in San Diego,
1: but because they had because this is what I'm they rehearsed, I believe, in New York before they came out. They again. did, and that all ha- that all happened before
0: I even knew about it. And the first I heard of it was this production was coming out to New to to San Diego for the Old gotcha. Globe. That's when I first heard about it.
1: And then, okay, so uh, tell me about uh, the beginning of your work uh, with that production.
0: Well, um, I met the the education company people and sort of what they were hoping to achieve. And then I started going to rehearsals. Um, And, you know, I just would catch whatever rehearsal I could around my new class schedule at the university. So, you know, it was just catch as catch can. But the good news was, is that it was a fairly tightly held rehearsal process. I mean, nobody could just walk in, um, but I had been given permission. And two or three appearances, people began to know that he's one of the approved. And so I would just pop into rehearsals, see what was going on, report back to the education process, and start to marry those two things. Once the education project started to take shape, and that happened fairly quickly, um, then I pretty much was done with that. And I just continued to go to rehearsals and watch the show evolve and go into performances and previews and changes of this song being cut or this character being cut, all that stuff. And that's, that's the part that was most fascinating to me.
1: So I'd left, love to know everything you thought about that. Remember about that, learn from that. I mean, anything you want, can share.
0: Well, you know, it was just fascinating watching, you know, like when I was out there, the, the three pigs were in in the show with Little Red Riding, you know, and the huffing and the puffing and all that stuff. And it was funny sort of watching, you know, I'm in one rehearsal, I, I'm seeing a scene with Little Red Riding and the Three Pigs, and then I come in the next two days later and that scene's completely gone. And, you know, so I'm processing, okay, you know, I wonder why that went. Is it and was this it was playing? like
1: it was like three other actors in the cast. Like I think Joy Franz had said that she played a pig and Merle yeah. Reese played a pig. Yeah. And were they in like pig full pig costumes?
0: They were in at my or I guess this was
1: rehearsal. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, it was rehearsal, but it was rehearsal. So, but I remember them looking pig-like. So I'm not sure if they had some sort of a headpiece, rehearsal doofer or whatever. And
1: And did they sing the pigs?
0: Not that I recall. I don't recall that they had any singing. Um, So they were there, then they were gone. And then a couple of days later, they were back in. You know, so just trying to be in the mindset of Sondheim and Lapine, and why was the decision made, or why wasn't it made? So that type of stuff was fascinating throughout. I remember. Oh, do,
1: sorry, do you remember other things like that that we would not know about now that had been pieces of the show? I remember. Um,
0: I remember that the Witch's big number in Act Two was "Boom Crunch," and before it became "Last Midnight." Yeah. And I remember that I had gotten the sheet music for that, for the education company. And I was really fascinated with that boom crunch number because I thought it was just a fascinating piece of writing and, um, and, and to watch, um, Ellen Foley, who was the witch out there sort of do that number. And it was sort of so part of her aesthetic, her visual aesthetic, her emotional aesthetic. And, and then and then when Last Midnight sort of morphed out of that, which I don't think happened in San Diego. I think that happened once Bernadette got involved. Yeah. And they sort of reshaped it later. But just sort of comparing those two things, the original for the, from the San Diego to what it became later, you know, was a, a study in lyric writing and character development and creating the right tone and diction of a character because that the character of the witch changed significantly. Um And, and I can share a couple of other anecdotes. I remember one day, one of my assignments was to go to the hotel where Sondheim was staying and to pick him up and bring him to rehearsal. I didn't do that often, but for some reason I was dispatched this time and I got to the hotel and as planned and knocked on the door and he came to the door and he opened it. He had this big sort of Cheshire cat grin on his face. And I said, I said, what's going on? You know, like I could just tell that he had something was going on. And he said, come in, I want you to hear this. And he proceeded to play me the, and I think I may have been the first person besides Sondheim to hear this. He's played me the reprise of Agony. And then it was so fascinating to me. Not only was I exposed to this reprise, which was such a brilliant parallel to the original from act one as these you know, these men have changed from having got the girl to now having a roving eye. I mean, it was just such a brilliant piece of writing. But what was fascinating is Sondheim sits at his piano in the hotel room and he plays this for me. And the first, and if, if you've ever heard any demo tapes of Sondheim, he's not a good singer. So it's really hard to exactly know what's happening <laughs> with the pitches and the melody. But because I knew the the, the original, I kind of knew where it was. Yeah. But he was laughing so hard while he was singing it to me that he kept dropping a lot of the lyrics. So I couldn't quite get all the punchlines. And when he was done, he looked at me like that sort of innocent little kid who's just done something wonderful. And he goes, what do you think? And I said, well, I think it's wonderful, but I really would like to hear it again because you were laughing so much. So he played it again and he put on his sort of actor face and he, he did it straight without laughing at himself. And, and of course, that's when I got the full power of it. And I thought, my gosh, my gosh, this is so brilliant. But you know, my takeaway from that, Ben, is he still was able to tickle himself. Mm. He still knew in the privacy of the writing what was really funny, what mm. was really a brilliant add-on to what he had written earlier and took the humor one step further. And I, to this day, I remain you know, so taken with how much he had tickled himself in his own work because when you see him in rehearsal and it's being handed over to the cast and they're working it up you don't often see that initial little pleasure mm. you know because he's got a in my experience with him he had a different mask on in those settings so that's one memory that I can share with you. Uh and that's so that-
1: interesting because you talked about um his initial reaction to the idea of having a production assistant and uh, being that writing is this uh private thing. And yet it does seem like he invited you into that space and you were able to share that experience with him in that moment.
0: Yeah. And I feel I feel like that was a rare thing you know I don't take that lightly when I share that story I share that in the wonder of it Um, Mm. just the 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 real blessing of having had that opportunity and a similar experience was uh, later in this process and I think the show hadn't opened yet I think it was still in rehearsal the night that the song, no more the ballad between the Baker and the Mm. mysterious man came into the show. And I had heard a couple of days before there was a buzz in rehearsal. I never talked directly to Sondheim about this type of thing, but I would heard that a new song was being written for the two characters and um, that there was a buzz building, that it was pretty impactful. And the day that it was going in or for that evening's rehearsal, um, when I got to the theater that day, the buzz was alive. It was like, "Oh my gosh, wait till you hear it." People had been hearing it in the rehearsal hall and it was going in that night and um what I recall was is that uh, to my to my recollection, Sondheim and I were the only two out in the house when they got to that point in the show when this song was being. Now, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure Lapine and his assistant and other people were out there, too. But this is how I recall it. That Sondheim was sitting in the center orchestra, probably about 10 rows back from the stage, and that he was slumped down in his theater chair with his feet over the back of the chair in front of him. So he was really cradled. Uh and And he sort of slumped down as the scene and as the song was coming, right? And And, you know, it was with piano only and uh, Chip Zion and Tom Aldridge were doing it. And, And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is that moment. This is that moment when you are a composer, lyricist, you've written something and you have, it's not like in the hotel room, sharing it with a production assistant. It's like, here it is. Here it is in the flow of this story for whatever impact it's going to have. And here's the moment where you, find out how people respond to it how do the actor what do the actors do with it what's the energy in the room how does it feed the story or not you know is it success is it failure all that stuff Mm. and so and I was even further back from Sondheim and I wasn't in center orchestra I was over to the left orchestra and so I was about 10 rows back so from that angle I could sort of see not him in full profile but enough of a profile to really try to read what was going on and for me as a young kid I was just like wow this first exposure in the story itself you know what is this like and 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 to this day, I say to myself, he wound himself. He went into the womb the way he slouched down and put his feet up over the chair in front of him. He was almost in the fetal position at this exposure. That's my interpretation, of course. But he closed himself off. I mean, at times, I don't even think he was looking at the stage. I think he was just listening to the music and what the actors were doing with it. And of course, you know, I was mesmerized both by what was, I was hearing and seeing, but also keeping half my eye on him the whole time. And you could hear the stillness in the theater and everybody, you could just tell the impact was, it probably had to be exactly what he wanted. And, you know, at the end, um, I just looked over, it was rehearsal, so there was no applause or anything, you know, so I just looked over and I just saw him wipe, just wipe a tear away. and And I just thought to myself, this is the rarest of rare moments that I am experiencing and I'm just a production assistant kid. And I'm telling you, these experiences have stayed with me so deeply.
1: Well, that's certainly uh, as good as it gets. It sounds like, I mean, in this art form, that's really the pinnacle. I mean, um, we're, were the were the, did you see a similar kind of um maybe not the exact full uh you know cradled moment but did did you sense that kind of uh experience going on for some time when other new material came in like i know a lot of people have talked about when no one is alone was introduced to the show would that have been that kind of a, a thing as well
0: um it probably was and I'm not even sure I may have been there for that first going right. in because I but my my schedule at the university, I couldn't be at everything. So yeah. I'm not sure I even experienced that. But in my mind, nothing sort of matched that. Oh no, no. That well, that to me was so quintessential.
1: I, I mean, I I you know, so um just also the content. I mean, I guess this goes for so much of the material in this show. It's it feels so personal. Um yeah. and um and speaking of that number specifically, I, you said Tom Aldridge, but I think maybe you meant to say George Coe in the San Diego production. Of course I did. You're man. absolutely
0: right. Thank you.
1: And because I'm curious uh, how he might have been in that role compared to the Tom Aldridge performance that, you know, is so familiar to people from the, uh, you know, American Playhouse broadcast and, you know, as well as the cast recording. Um what was his mysterious man a similar mysterious man to tom aldridge's mysterious well that men? role
0: is that role is written so specifically with all these sort of little fragments of thought and philosophy that come out so i think any actor you you you, you in some way you just have that the type of material is going to guide it but uh, there were differences i thought that tom aldridge when i saw him in new york he was much more um he was much more mentally acute and crisp Ah. with with it and i thought that george Coe was a little softer Mm. and a little more emotionally vulnerable trying to sort of the things coming out of his mouth were not so much um proclamations as they were invitations to see if we can reconnect can you figure out who i am Uh, what is this about so there was a there was a, a softness to that wow
1: yeah. Um you also uh and th- thinking of that song. I understand that in the old Globe production the mysterious man had more to sing uh with more vocal lines um and in a, a, parts that are you know not in the score anymore uh in no more something about the garden like a, a little verse is that, did, did what did that um bring or or what was lost with the cutting of that do you, do you remember
0: Um, You know, that's a tough one for me. I do remember that the verse, he had a little bit more in there and that it did eventually get trimmed down. Uh, You know, one of my biggest takeaways from the experience was when things were cut or trimmed, uh, to me, it was like, okay, that's gone. Mm -hmm. How does this feel without it? Did we lose anything? And or is it more powerful because it's more concise? And in every single case, Mm. it was the concision that I'm like, I get it. I get it. And I remember having one conversation with Sondheim about sort of the cutting and he, the way he phrased it was, you know, you write it, you write everything you think you want to put into that song, everything you can think of for the character in the moment, and the situation, you put it out there. And then you're in the glorious position of, if you've got too much, you just have to cut it down. And in the cutting process, you're going to make it sharper, clearer, and cleaner. And you know, that's the lesson I learned. I have used that so much in my own work is that I'm in the glorious position of having too much stuff. Great. And th- that's what it was like.
1: You know, I, I remember working on a show years ago where there was kind of like a showstopper that I, I was the director and I really thought that it had nothing to add uh to the story and that it really, um, uh, got the audience too invested in a character that they shouldn't have been spending that much time invested in. Ah. And the producer and even the writers disagreed with me because I, and I still think they were wrong because they just fell in love with the fact that this performer was dazzling and the audience just ate it up. Mm. Um, I'm, I wonder if there were things uh that got cut that, you know, maybe were harder to lose because of that kind of value they had or or that maybe that, stayed because even though the sort of relentless you know the the ruthless uh uh conciseness would have called for their cutting I, j- I just wonder if there were any things that sort of you know either did or didn't get cut but had that kind of uh you know uh, questionable value in the show
0: mm. you know it's such an interesting question and i'm struggling with it because the way for me to contextualize the, whether or not i felt that or not is but what really isn't possible until the Broadway cast recording came out. Yeah. You get to know that score by heart. Mm-hmm. Certainly when it was in San Diego, I got familiar with it and I had my hands on a few pieces of music, but not most of it. Yeah. And it was changing so much that it didn't template itself. It didn't imprint itself. Yeah. Enough for me to sort of make some of those judgment calls. Certainly there was no, really wonderful show-stopping or emotional piece that was cut that you felt like whoa where did that go yeah Um, there was nothing like that um it was all about small little edits sure or changes of lyrics or the boom crunch boom crunch becoming last midnight that was a significant
1: let's get into that because um you know of course i having not uh been a production assistant on the old global production sad for me uh first got to know into the woods through the you know final or you know Broadway opening version as broadcast and on the album and um and now doing all this research, I have gotten to know last uh boom Crunch somewhat well but and yeah. is a song that I've known for you know thirty years or whatever and uh you know thirty five years and and have long loved and um so, to me, it seems so clear that that was just a, an out and out improvement, but uh many people, uh, including Paul Ford, have that you know were involved in the show in in the trenches, speak so um lovingly of the boom crunch and um I'm curious what your opinion on that replacement was
0: Well, I think the replacement was right as the characterization evolved and the casting changed but i'm with paul boom crunch was so ellen foley she played that role with such a i don't want to say a rocker edge but she had that quality about her and that's sort of how her career uh started in any way and she the visual of that character in that production with the hair that was spiky and the long sort of leather boots uh at one point i mean there was a real almost sort of SNM dominatrix hint toward the visual and the energy of the role it was it was about the witch protecting this child Rapunzel at all costs and damn the world if, if anything's gonna get in her way I mean it just had an edge to it right and so boom crunch which you know there's a little bit of that in last midnight but boom crunch is all of that it's the full release of that ferociousness of you know the the absurdity of the world and the the idiocy of the choices and decisions the good versus the bad and uh, you know all that stuff that eventually worked its way into last midnight but it was so right for the way she was playing that role. Now, you know for whatever reason that once it left San Diego they moved the role in a different direction. Um, but I thought it was some great writing. I'm with Paul. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Yeah, and so um she did not have uh The Witch, did, other than Boom Crunch and The rap didn't really have any other big solo kind of musical material at the old globe is that right that's right to well
0: i'm trying to think if stay with me was in there i think stay with me was in or if the song wasn't in then a scene the scene was there and so you got a hint of both the control and what was going to become a real force of the character which or a prong of the character, which was the the mothering the the nurturing right? you got that softer, but I remember Ellen Foley having some scenes that were trying to begin the softening of that characterization, yeah, you know I mean? think they might have just been
1: scenes without music, at least on what what I've found um and um did you have a sense uh? That there, uh, did were you around Sondheim and Lapine a lot during the run at the Old Globe? Um And did you have a well? I guess am I understanding correctly that they continued to make changes on the show in San Diego even after it had opened? Indeed. And so, and did you have a sense that this was just the beginning and that bigger changes would be happening prior to Broadway?
0: You know, I. I think I don't know that I had enough wherewithal as a young theater person to know. I assumed it was going to try to go into New York. Um, In my thinking, it was going to be this cast. This cast has been rehearsed. This cast is being developed. It was just going to lift and that it would continue to evolve. Um, That was my sense of it. But yes, during the run in San Diego it was changing and that was maybe the most enjoyable part of the process for me because I did get to usually Sondheim and Lapine would sit in the back row during those performances in front of the audience and I would sit next to him and you know he usually doesn't have an assistant but you know in this particular case here I was and he helped me get in there so I would take a few notes for him every once in a while they were usually musical cueing notes that he wanted Paul Geminani to have or whatever. Um and and Lapine's assistant would sit on the other side of him. And so so I would get Lepine's to hear, assistant RJ Cutler was that or or John Murray? No, um Lapine's assistant out there was David Warren. Oh, interesting. David Warren who's gone on to do some directing of his own. Great, thank you. Um and so So I would listen to some of the I would eavesdrop to some of the whispers going on back and forth between Sondheim and Lapine about, you know, this line or this scene or this character or this actor, if they were displeased with the way an actor was maybe handling a moment and so I found all that kind of interesting. And sometimes from what I'd hear them say, uh, two days later, a, a cut or a change would be made and I'll i have been able to connect. Oh, that was the germ of this, why this change is going in. Uh, the big problem out there was it was so long and the audience was leaving at the end of act one because they thought it was over. And yeah. so they, they had to figure out their funny story about that. I, I remember sitting next to Sondheim during one of the performances and after intermission, And this is when, you know, a lot of the audience had been leaving at the end of act one, and they were trying to figure out what to do and eventually put they have the growing beanstalk at the end of act one in that last number so people would think oh something's yet to come, but that still wasn't solving the problem and as the lights were going down for the start of act two Sondheim sort of got up in his seat and he's looking out over the house and he's counting. And I just looked at him as he finished and said, and I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm counting empty seats. And I said, why? He said, I'm trying to figure out if the show's any good. And I thought to myself, you're kidding me. Stephen Sondheim is, is using the barometer of how many people have come back. Have they solved the problem? Are people liking the show? And it just comes down to the patrons, the audience never lies, you got to listen to the audience. And that was a real, a real eye opening lesson for me, because I'm thinking, oh, this is the great Stephen Sondheim, he wouldn't need to do something like that as a barometer of success. But he was and I thought it was wonderfully humble.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. Um- So in those conversations that you would hear them having or that you'd be a part of or, you know, around during that time period in general, did you really not have any sense that there were any cast changes that they might be theorizing? Uh, Well,
0: (laughs) there was, you know, the day I got to the theater and it was in performance and the buzz was that Bernadette Peters was coming out to see the show that night. And I'm like, oh, wow. I figured, well, she just did Sunday in the Park with George. They just won a Pulitzer. They must be great friends. Uh, maybe she's on the West Coast for some reason. And she's just going to stop in and see their new musical. But then I was talking to another rehearsal present person who is sort of on my level. And we were talking a little bit about it. And they said, yeah, they're going to dinner tonight. And I thought, do you know where they're going to dinner? <laughs> And so this person knew the restaurant and the time. So we went to the restaurant a half hour early. And it was the type of restaurant where, you know, there weren't multiple rooms, it was one sort of space. So we figured we got there a half hour early, got a table that was a pretty good table to see anything that might go on. And of course, got our menus ready so that we could hide behind our menus. And so we we weren't close enough to them to over overhear anything they were saying, but I wanted to see Bernadette Peters, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just as simple as that, yeah. you know? And so we were there and, and, and they came in and, and, you know, they had their dinner and they, I don't think they ever saw us. And, you know, when it was all done, we sort of changed our positions and we got out early and all that stuff. It was just, it was just young kids being, you know, you know, starstruck that sort of thing. But the conversation that we had was, why is bernadette here she's a star this show doesn't have a female star i mean she's not going to take over the baker's wife because joanna gleason is killer she's killer in the role and the only other possibility was the witch and we thought maybe but the witch is not the star role either you know it's an ensemble piece um and so we debated that and we finally just decided that We just decided that, you know, she was friends and she'd come out to see it. But within about a week or so, you could hear the cast beginning to talk. There had been talk about the eventual uh, process moving to New York and that amongst them, they had all figured that there was going to be a change in the role of the witch and that they were trying to get uh, Bernadette. Now, you've probably you're probably aware of this story that at the Old Globe, Rapunzel's tower James Lapine and Tony Strages the set designer wanted the tower to come from the floor and to telescope up hydraulically as opposed to wheel on and Jack O'Brien at the Old Globe and said no no we can't excavate our theater i don't have that kind of money and you don't this production is not going to make that kind of money while it's out here blah 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 well eventually the word goes, I can't remember who from the company, though I heard it through someone in the grapevine that once they signed Bernadette, uh, James Lapine's uh, response was, I'm going to get my telescoping tower, which is what <laughs> they got in New York, you know, because yeah. if you got a big name like that, you're going to have a, you, it elevates the production
1: to a whole new fiscal level. This is so interesting because of course i'm sh- maybe you know that after san diego they did a workshop in new york with betty buckley as the witch um with uh at least at some point the offer for betty to then do their role on broadway and that broke down i'm still getting so i'm still circling uh, you know, the exact details of the, the how and the why and the when. But at least at some point after San Diego, the intention was for Betty Buckley to be the witch on Broadway. So I'm curious, you know, God, I wish you had sat closer to them at that restaurant. I mean, <laughs> as the conversation. Yeah. There's really no, this part is really too small. Um, I, I mean, I also know that, you know, Bernadette went, did, um, an extremely short run in Into the Woods. You know, she famously was already gone by the time of the Tony Awards. Um, that's why her replacement, Felicia Rashad, is the p- witch in the clip from Into the Woods. Yeah. But, um, but even Felicia Rashad had, there was a month of, I think, Betsy Joslin after Bernadette. It's not even like Bernadette left the week before the Tonys. I mean, I think she left like in March. Yeah. So I mean it I you know maybe that was the first conversation it's not a big enough part and Bernadette's commitments to I think she was doing a movie meant that it she couldn't really do it and then when maybe this is me just theorizing when things fell apart with Betty for whatever reason they said forget it we'll accept Bernadette even on these extremely limited terms you know um and also maybe I mean when you talk about um Another question that has come up for me in various conversations, and maybe you can help shed light on it, is to what extent the changes in The Witch were sort of dramaturgical or um, the evolution- partly due to Bernadette's personality, maybe partly due to Bernadette's star presence, maybe a little of both, you know, but, you know, which, which of them would have been in motion no matter who played the witch? Um, you know, for example, if, they, if you say they were writing these more vulnerable emotional scenes between the witch and Rapunzel in San Diego, uh, you know, what, even if they didn't have Stay With Me yet, it seems like maybe that was a direction that they were heading before Bernadette was in the cast. And I believe it's been said that stay with me was written for Betty in that um, workshop process, uh, which is certainly feasible, you know, um, musically. So, uh, and and then another thing is that, um, you know, Bernadette is so funny in the role. And um, at least there's like a, there's a clip on YouTube of a press rehearsal, like, that the they're still in the studio. They have not moved into the Martin Beck yet, but it's the it's the Broadway production, you know, maybe their final rehearsal in the studio or something. Um, and it's there's a sequence from the opening rap. And Bernadette is much less funny than she is on the cast recording or hmm. certainly the video. And uh it seems safe to for me to guess that a lot of that comedy was stuff she found, you know, once she was really doing the material and so uh I'm curious like was there much comedy and really anything you can say to help me understand how much of it was a difference between the persona of Ellen Foley and the persona of Bernadette Peters with something happening in between with Betty Buckley and how much was the you know material growing I don't know if you can help me figure that out.
0: My, my only sense is, is I think that with Ellen Foley's version of it in San Diego, it was pretty dark. It was pretty driving. It was pretty edgy. And, and, uh, and, I, and it was also a little unclear. I mean, be, I mean, part of the response that I had to it was, is that it almost had um, an inappropriate expression of a mother-daughter relationship to it. It it felt, you know, I felt that it was very unclear. It was hard. It was edgy, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. And so my sense is once I got, had a clear realization that this is going to go on to New York and it sounds like they're making some changes here, that all made sense to me because I felt that it needed some clarity to it, right? It just needed some clarity. Um, I never learned about Betty Buckley and the workshop that happened before the New York Uh, uh, production until well after I had seen it in New York and continued on with my association with Sondheim and then read at some point that there had been this thing with Betty Buckley and that the little bit I heard was that you know she was very intense and very impactful Um, and so I just thought well you know yeah so was it it intended for her and or were there issues with Bernadette I know I saw Bernadette come out to see it and uh, but I've never really begun to been able to understand that i do think that you know the humor in san diego was in joanna gleason yeah she was was the pressure valve and she she and chip sort of carried that whole sort of getting us through that um getting Mm -hmm. an audience who's not quite sure what this musical is and is it over in act one do we come back for act two yeah the, the baker and the baker's wife is what carried you through yeah um but certainly by the time it got to new york with bernadette and the humor that she brought to it almost in some cases, you know, vaudevillian, like yeah. so big, you yeah. know, those are all little vaudeville turns. You know what I mean? Um uh, But she had, yeah, she had found that, but I, I can't really tell you about Betty's role in it and what the, the thing was. And it makes perfect sense. If you tell me that Bernadette was reportedly scheduled to work on a movie and so they felt like they wouldn't get enough time with her and so they went to somebody else but then that didn't work out and they figured let's get her in and launch the show certainly i can imagine from their experience in san diego where the reviewers were not kind
1: yeah that they felt star power was necessary yeah yeah um that's uh uh it's interesting what you say about um the inappropriateness and i'm so I think Betty Buckley would be gratified to hear you say that I have not talked to Betty for this podcast yet, but there's a wonderful book. Maybe you've read it. Nothing like a Dame by Eddie Shapiro. No, it I haven't. These wonderful. I think there's a, a follow-up book and there's one that's all Broadway leading men, but nothing like a Dame is these great Broadway leading ladies, Betty Buckley, Patti Lapone, Sheeta Rivera, um, Many other people, not Bernadette, but um, these great just conversations with them. Uh, and they're very frank and fascinating um, about ins and outs of their career. Yeah. And Betty talks, uh, I believe it's the only time in in print uh, about her involvement with Into the Woods, which mm. I mean, one of the reasons for me even doing this podcast is how little information is out there about uh, the gestation of this, uh, you know, iconic landmark show. Um, but Betty says in that book that um her uh sort of artistic uh difference with Lapine over the character was that she saw um uh the relationship between the witch and Rapunzel as an abusive mother, and Lapine saw it as a lesbian relationship, mm. and. Uh, and, and she talks about, I think she says from her point of view, after she was gone, they wound up doing what she had been advocating for. And I found that so confusing because I thought, well, did Lepine mean like there's a, a color of the relationship that has like an incestual vibe? Or was he literally saying like she has taken this girl as her ward, like the judge and Joanna, and wants to, you know... Uh, have sex with her and you know that's not really clear to me um in in this interview with betty buckley but one of the things i would love to ask her about um but uh but it's fascinating that you said the inappropriateness of the relationship did what can you say anything about more about that
0: yeah i was trying to be delicate in talking to you about it because that was exactly the vibe you got in san diego is that um and, and now it's interesting that lapine
1: says that that's how he envisioned the relationship as a, a led- i don't know i don't I, lapine did not say that to me but okay but
0: so there was some sense that maybe that was lapine's sense of what he was looking for in the relationship um from someone else's interpretation yeah i certainly got that interpretation some of the physical actions that ellen foley was doing in as the witch um certainly spoke toward um a physical attractiveness a physical impulse mm. and 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 that was part of what was confusing um, yeah. because it it took it to a a very different place yeah um uh interesting and fascinating but it just it just you you had you you just it was hard to settle in on it yeah and, and so if betty had a workshop where she was sort of bringing in more of the maternal a troubled maternal relationship and that she and look pine may have clashed over that interpretation it's fascinating to think then that when bernadette got her hands on it it really moved in the direction that betty might have been yeah. suggesting because i i certainly can tell you as someone who experienced the one as an observer and the other as the observer this the evolution yeah. felt felt much more impactful in this story about parents
1: and children yeah for sure and you know also i i actually want to have a second conversation with lapine now that i have all this information because it's possible that he will say yes betty helped us realize that that was one of the wonderful impacts she had on the show and we got to continue to benefit from and that's not why she was used, you know um <laughs> so you know i don't it may be that they all would agree about that now um so it sounds like you felt that uh, aside from the um, evolution of the material, that Ellen Foley's performance was strong, and that the desire to replace her had to do with getting a name and not a you know, quote unquote, better performance.
0: I think Ellen Foley's performance was powerful. I mean, she was just a fearless actress, actor, yeah. I mean, just incredible. And she was making bold choices and she didn't hold back. And some of it sometimes felt more like um, it was coming out of her background as a rock singer. Yeah. But, but she wasn't afraid. She was going to bring that to the stage. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So that was all fascinating. Uh, but my sense is, yeah, that they just, it was the evolution of the role and yeah. of the show. Because as yeah. you all of that second half of act two is all about the parents
1: and the children yeah so that's clearly where it was going yeah you know um speaking of the parents and the children was there in san diego or are you familiar with this song second midnight this like six minute beast of a group number yeah
0: yeah and the first midnight the second midnight and I, I I remember the two. And when, when they got to the last midnight for Bernadette, something, something's told me, Oh, is that that third midnight that I was aware of? And, and, but, but that might just be my old memory. With yeah. it, you know what I mean? But there was the first midnight, which was, you know, everyone sort of prophesizing about what they're learning along the way in the journey. Yeah. And then the second one, which takes that a little deeper. And I loved that. I loved, cause I love a structural device that continues to sort of um, expand and take you deeper as the story evolves, and that's what it did. My sense of it is that it was cut, and I think it was cut in San Diego. I could be wrong about that. Maybe it just didn't make it to New York, but either way, is that it was about the the uh, the show was too long. Yeah.
1: Um, and um, I, people have talked about the sort of two, I don't even competing, uh, kind of. Um, central themes of the show whether it was about parents and children or about individual in a community and I'm curious how you see that and and what how you saw that evolve
0: well this is of course coming when as I've grown older and had a chance to get to know the show really well and been involved in it on my own now in a number of different productions but you know the, the the two the two that you just set up they're one of the same I mean, Mm -hmm. parents of children and how an individual operates in for the greater good is really the very goal and role of parents for their children. Mm. And so I found those two things sort of of a piece Mm. that, that that what a parent does with their child, hopefully, does prepare them to be a kind person who cares about the greater good, not just their own individual good. So I always those things are interchangeable
1: in my mind, you know? I'm, wow, well, I think you just explained children will listen. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, uh, one complaint that I've felt at times watching other productions of the show um, was that there was this sort of um, kind of inspirational power ballad after inspirational power ballad back to back for the final, you know, 25 minutes with no more into no one is alone into children will listen. And I, I wonder if your sense of the piece uh, has has feels that there's a weighted down there too. I think so. I think
0: one of the things that I, in subsequent conversations with Sondheim over the years after that experience. Um, I was doing some writing myself, and I would send some of that to him and get some feedback from him. And so I had an opportunity to sort of, you know, learn from him a little bit. And one of the cautions he gave me on a piece that I had put together was, you've got three endings, John, Mm. choose an ending. And I often think that Into the Woods feels that way with those yeah. backed up power ballads that it it, it decided, okay, we're going to land on the emotional impact of children, you know, and how the, how the things we do in this world impact other people. And it keeps saying that over and over again. They're glorious songs. Yeah. I can, I, can, I know why you wouldn't take the scalpel to them, you know, yeah. but that is a moment where you've got enough, you could probably trim this down for and make this even more concise. So I do feel that and I understand the criticism of it.
1: Yeah. Although you didn't have children will listen in at the old globe, is that right? That's correct. We did not. And did but- you did did you feel like maybe it was better in that respect w- when it didn't have yet another
0: Um when I saw it in New York and and got to children uh children will listen children will listen felt good to me yeah it felt good to me yeah uh, and that's not that no no more no one is alone don't feel good they feel good for all kinds of right reasons um but it felt good to me because because you know it was uh, the dead witch and the dead baker coming or baker's wife coming back from the dead and it had this sort of metaphysical ethereal sort of here's the here's the grand moral of it all so you kind of know what they were trying to do with it but you know if today i would i would be hard pressed to want to cut one of those numbers even yeah. though i understand the criticism of it yeah i can't think of a another show that i think is a well written show that has committed that sin and gotten away with it
1: yeah yeah that's true um uh are there are there any things in the show that that you might have thought uh could someone else has mentioned um That the whole sequence with the prince going to the stepsisters, even though it's a you know familiar beloved part of the Cinderella story with them trying on the shoes, that that whole thing didn't need to actually be happening on stage in this piece.
0: Yeah, I still feel that way today that there are stuff that could have been handled expositorily since you got the device of a narrator anyway. Yeah, um. That you didn't necessarily have to, but I mean that whole scene with the trying on the shoe and the cutting off the toe. I mean that was that was that was a definite crowd response. I won't say crowd pleaser, yeah. but I think it was pleasing to a crowd, even if yeah. they found it graphic and gross. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, so it it sort of enlivened the proceedings, and I kind of understand why it was there and and why it was
1: kept. Totally. Um, and how about the device of the double casting of the narrator and the mysterious man? Because that's something that changed from the old globe. How, how did that strike you? Um,
0: it was it was OK to me. It felt all right. It felt it felt kind of interesting to take. The narrator and to get him then into the story. Yeah. Even if it was just through a different character, you know, the audience would have some awareness that it's the same person playing the role. I think, even though the costuming and the wigging would change the look substantively, but that felt kind of good to me. It's sort of like in assassins when the balladeer and John Wilkes Booth. Yeah, totally. It's that same thing that a lot of people don't like that, but I find that very satisfying in the productions
1: when I've seen that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, uh what about the um uh Rapunzel I I know that in San Diego Kay McLellan played um Florinda and Rapunzel and that always seemed interesting to me I mean I'm a fan of hers and a fan of Pamela Winslow's uh who played Rapunzel on Broadway but I um but I, I but I'm so curious how that be the way, because I like what you said, the audience has an awareness, despite the wigs and the costumes, that this is uh, the narrator, you know, and and I think that's really true. In a sense, it almost contributes to the sort of um, storytelling presentational aspect of the show that he's yeah. part of putting on this show for us. Um, and uh, so I'm one. I'm curious what how that uh, felt to have that double casting. Yeah.
0: It, it it didn't have any impact yeah. uh, to me it was just a commercial decision to save ah. money and not hire another actor ah. because if you just look at those two roles, even if you have the awareness, it doesn't make send any sort of message of uh, in my
1: mind of any value whereas yeah. the
0: narrator and the mysterious man really oh. does
1: yeah. and um is it true that um maybe if you remember uh that the Rapunzel, um, what would you call it? Like the vocalize, the the little ahs that she sings were down the octave in San Diego and that that was an innovation for her to sing them high in, in New York?
0: Uh, they may have started down the octave in San Diego, but I remember them in San Diego being high. Ah, okay. I do remember that. Be feeling feeling very high soprano-ish and just wafting out of the sky.
1: I mean, that, I, I guess, uh, back to the sort of lesbian witch thing, one of the, you know, very motherly moments of uh, Bernadette's performance, and I think subsequent witches, is, is that um when she hears Rapunzel singing and she's so proud of her, uh, it's like her daughter, you know, that it's almost like someone's showing you pictures of their grandchildren or something, you know? Um, Was that different? Is that one of the moments where Ellen Foley's witch had like a sexual pleasure from the the sound of the, was there a sensuality or something to it?
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is one thing about Ellen Foley is that any pleasure in her interpretation of that role, it coursed through the body (laughs) in ways that, you know, sort of had that spine tingling
1: sensibility for her i mean it was really registering on a physical level fascinating um uh glad to know that um and- you know
0: and, and just going back to the rapunzel's theme uh. you know and i'm i'm just trying to really remember do i do i remember it down low and i never did and you know that yeah, of course you know this because you've you know this show better than i think anybody i've ever met um uh, that theme becomes you know don't you know what's out yeah. there you can stay with me it's it's in the accompaniment of no no one is alone I mean that theme in agony it's in it's in everything yeah. and yeah. so I think so the my beans. sense is that having it be this high lilting just floating in the air thing is what's made separated it made its statement and then gave Sondheim permission to sort of then Place it in other places in in wonderfully lower yeah. and hidden
1: layers, you know, yeah, yeah, if that's the tapestry of the score, yeah um and uh i I guess, as a young Sondheim fan who had done his research, did you have a sense of this piece in the sort of um canon of Sondheim, like you know from the beginning
0: um, that's such an interesting question. I think because I was I was in this enviable position of being able to be a part of it and actually kind of touch it and observe it and see it, that I wasn't thinking that way. I was yeah. so distracted by and consumed by just taking in what I was seeing and learning, and that it was it was almost like you know, a course of study for me as another class that I was going to. And it's larger impact in terms of the show what did it become and how does it then sort of fit into his larger you know canon of work and especially now that he's gone and a lot of people are sort of looking more reflectively at that arc of his career yeah now you certainly understand its its place but at the time I don't think I was even thinking about it that way you know when I went to New York and I finally saw it in New York I was like you know okay how has this changed you know I was still in that sort of student
1: learning editorial
0: mode you know
1: yeah I mean it's it is it's interesting how much especially for younger generations this is really like the Sondheim musical and that's not how it was you know necessarily perceived by Sondheim's contemporaries and then the world of the original production but I, I you just struck me though that this internship that you got almost out of convenience because you had to fulfill this requirement and this wasn't really exactly what was even in your mind the assignment but you were just going to kind of like you know finagle it turned out to be this probably you know transcendent experience in your life as an artist and 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 you know professional um it's that you you, you couldn't
0: you couldn't have said it better it was a life-changing experience that I feel like serendipity just dropped in my lap
1: yeah it's it's so funny that something that that it almost seems like a cutting a corner uh, turns yeah. out to be, you know, the, the center centerpiece of your education, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, how and boy, was I ever the envy of my classmates in my I program? I yeah. was the envy of all of them. They're like, do you, do you have any, your hands on any of the music? Can you show us any of the music? Ah. I mean, it was crazy.
1: And how soon were you able to get to New York and see the show?
0: No, I think that, uh, did it open in February?
1: No, it opened in, uh, uh, like, the end of October, beginning of November, something like that. Oh, wait a minute.
0: So it left it left San Diego in January,
1: and you're saying it didn't open until yeah. the, the following fall? Yeah, no, no, they did all kinds of um, choreography workshops and casting, and then they had a full w- workshop for a couple of weeks in July. Um And then they started rehearsals in uh, September and previews and yeah.
0: Then that tells me, and that's really helpful that you know that so well, then that tells me, because I would have started my second year in the MFA program in San Diego in California, and I would not have been able to get to New York. So I probably didn't see it in New York until I would bet late April or May.
1: But then Bernadette would have been gone. Did you not see Bernadette? I did see Bernadette. So when did she leave it? I'm pretty sure she left in March. All right, then
0: then I maybe it was my spring break or something. Yeah. I got there because yeah. I heard she was going to leave or something and I yeah. wanted to get to see her. So that that's that's the timing then for me. Yeah.
1: Um and so did did you feel like you were seeing a show that you know, quote unquote, your show, you know, that you that you yeah. were involved in? Yeah,
0: I, I did. It was it was different enough that it was still sort of, you know, I was disoriented by it. Yeah. but it, There was enough familiarity there. And certainly when you see, oh, there's Chip and there's Joanna and there's that yeah. beautiful relationship. It feels so familiar. So it was both familiar and, you know, and yet different, you know.
1: If if you don't mind going into belabor a different aspect of the show um, that I haven't asked you about is the the Baker's wife's end. I understand that that is something that they were experimenting with in San Diego in, I, I think the workshop they did that summer was uh, in of 87 was partly to try out. I think they even had like two or three different uh, invited performances, each with a different, ending one where the baker's wife died one where the baker's wife didn't die and one i think where everybody died but i'm curious like did that seem like an unsolved problem did she she ate like a poison apple or something in san diego is that right yeah
0: she ate the poison apple did it seem like an unsolved problem a lot of the show felt like unsolved mm-hmm. problems. the problem the show threw its run and left san diego with lots of things that just you knew weren't done yet Um, so there was a lot of that, but, um, I think, I think it was, I recall being jarred by losing her. Yeah. I think that was the intention. Um, it was a powerful statement to make on a character that we care that much about. Um, but I remember feeling unsettled by it. And I remember thinking that's the wrong thing to do. Mm. Um, and I think I still feel that way when I feel the show now having her come back sort of as a ghost figure at the end. Yeah. As the father's going to try to take the baby and go forward, that sort of it sort of gives it some redemption, but that yeah. just felt so, uh, I felt such the loss of that.
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. it It is jarring. That's for sure. Um, and um, I, I, I know that uh, Joanna's um, input was really instrumental in how, the character and her material evolved especially uh, her song moments in the woods and i guess it was called ready for the woods or something like that still in san diego that, that registers with me yes i mean do you remember that being significantly different or was it just about sort of refining the finer points of it
0: in my mind it was about refining it that as i saw it when i saw it in new york it was still that tune in essence My biggest recollection of that piece in San Diego was um, and Joanna has uh, mentioned this in interviews that she just didn't trust herself as a singer because Mm. it asked her to move into her mixed voice and Ah. up into her head. And it was just sort of fascinating to watch a singer um, have to trust the material Ah. and, and how, what she would do as an actor could help with the vocal adjustments that needed. To yeah. And, and certainly when I saw it in New York, I thought, wow, boy, listen to that voice. She's yeah. really just trusting the blossom on top of it. And it was, blossom was really top. wonderful.
1: I love the blossom on top. Um, yeah. She talked about that too, how they would, she would say, Oh, I, I can't sing that. And sometimes would sort of impatiently be like, yeah, you can just do it. <laughs> um, and uh it it is such a um impactful resonant performance. I mean, I think it's in some ways the the hardest, especially with the video, uh, where people know all her line readings kind of by heart because they're so funny and so inspired and and just you know, smart. Um yeah. that you know, people I think there's such a a a a a f- wide shadow cast by that performance that is hard for other actors to sort of, you know, find their way. Um, but it's funny that it was one that she, you know, uh, had to find. Did, did it seem when you see that fully realized performance by Joanna, uh, is it just the difference in the confidence in the vocals that that evolved or were there other pieces of that that it seemed like she still was working through in San Diego?
0: um she, listen she was brilliant in san diego her comic timing she led chip she led chip to what that those scenes could become and what that relationship should mm. become. she just brilliant so and 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 that that i saw in new york i mean as i saw it in san diego it was you know pretty much right there the whole way through so for me when i saw it in new york it was the development or confidence of the voice but more than that i think was that she somewhere along the way figured out that all she had to do was take the impulses of the acting, of the actor's impulses of the work in the character, and let that help with the singing. And mm. that's what I, I sensed was the realization. You know, mm. And it got her into a discovery that there's more voice in me that I didn't know. Mm. And it's very usable. In fact, the vulnerability of going up through the mid part of the register and then blossoming into a full head voice, the vulnerability. So what am I singing about? Where's the vulnerability and what I'm singing about bring the vulnerability to just take me right up into that. And it was just wonderful.
1: That's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah we hear that. Um both in the vulnerability and in the comedy, absolutely. Yeah. Um, God, I mean, I could just pick your brain all day. Um, I'm. I guess, is anything else that that struck you seeing it on Broadway after having had this um, developmental experience with it? Um, just
0: that the continued um, imprint in my mind that I was what I was seeing how shows got put together. Yeah. And for a kid, it was like, I had no idea that this type of thought and trial and error and casting and recasting, I just had no idea. And so that was that was just the biggest piece for me. I will share this one little snip, tidbit with you. When um, Sondheim was there for opening and then Sondheim went back to New York and he continued to play, while he was gone, the reviews came out. <laughs> And the reviews were not good for the most part. Um, And here I was thinking I was going to do something really helpful Uh because I was his assistant, (laughs) supposedly. Um, I sent him a copy of the reviews. Now, I'm sure the press people with the show had probably sent him the reviews, but I didn't know that. So I sent him a a note saying, dear Mr. Sondheim, you know, I know you're back in New York and you won't be coming back into town for a couple of weeks, but the reviews have come in and, and um, I wanted you to send them, I thought you probably, you know, blah, 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 and I said, and and some of them aren't very positive, but, um, you know, I was, you know, making some statement like that thinking it was my place to you know set the the context for him like he would need that right and um so i sent that off to him and then before he returned to the production i got a note back from him and dear john thanks for sending the reviews some of them are not very nice is an understatement and then (laughs) the letter went into a tirade about the role of the theater critic being the low man on the totem pole the people who uh have no have have no right to criticize because they have no idea what the effort in in the practice of doing is and just just really unleashed a personal venom not to me yeah it was through me because i happened to inspire it by sending them to him but uh boy i was really taken back by that and it elevated the power of critics in this business it's about money and um the chasm that can exist between critics and writers um and then of course you think about frank rich and the relationship they developed and how sondheim befriended him and yeah. he, and brought him into his circle
1: but that was an early taste of you know yeah just that response yeah fascinating um although it, people are surprised frank rich was pretty negative about into the woods yes exactly yeah um so fascinating but definitely part of the Sondheim uh circle no, nonetheless yes. um and I and seeing the show over the years and the the film adaptation any revivals I, did do you have any sort of evolving thoughts on on the significance of the piece or or the impact of it
0: The answer is no, um, <laughs> because I think the piece registers on so many personal levels for the people who see it and and then appreciate it and love it. Um, it makes a bold statement about, you know, the greater good and our responsibilities to one another. And I think that's important. Um, but no, I, I don't, I don't. I, maybe it's that I don't really presume presume to feel like i don't i don't know i just i don't it's to me it's a powerful beautiful piece of theater among many that he has written and among you know lots of that have existed in in our musical theater canon you know uh, i don't know i i hope that's not disappointing but no it's, No. it's no, almost no. it's almost the question is almost too big for me i know to, i'm to re- tell re-
1: you the truth it, it's i listen i people are surprised when i say that into the Woods is not in my top five favorite Sondheim shows. Wow. I mean, that's still pretty good to be in my top six favorite Sondheim shows. That's, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, it's, it's complicated. But um, uh, you mentioned that you had worked on several productions after that. And were, did you direct them or what was your...
0: Yeah, I've directed it twice. I choreographed it once ah. and, I've, and I've conducted it three times and the joy of the conducting experience has been every single time I found something new in the score, mm-hmm. which mm. is why I love to conduct uh, a good piece of musical writing. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I know the show from lots of different angles. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, that's lovely and wonderful.
1: Um, I'd, I mean, if you would share just a tidbit of new things you found in the score conducting, I'd, I'd love, I'd love to know any of that. Oh my goodness. Um I
0: think that the production that I did that had the inclusion of the duet between the witch and Rapunzel, our little world. Yeah. um, How that was the same melody of no more uh, running away, our little world.
1: I didn't realize that. See, this is why it's so important to ask you this.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, so when I discovered that, you know, I thought, running away, we'll do it. Our little world is perfect. The exact same notes. and In fact, it's the exact same rhythm. Um, it's just different words. And so when I when I had that moment, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, and then I'm thinking, well, of course, the witch, the mother to the child, Rapunzel, the mysterious man to the child, the baker. And that, again, it motive, music motive, motives being... Used to imprint theme and relationship and uh, I mean just things like that blow me away, you mm-hmm. know. You know, and how I would have loved, and uh, I'm sure I didn't after I discovered that. You know, it would have been like me to send him a note or call him up and say, "Hey, I just discovered this," but I didn't, and I would have loved to have had a, a conversation with him about. just yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me where that came from. You yeah. Know? So that's one, that's one example.
1: I love that. I mean, well, you know, that's the beauty of Sondheim is these, these rich scores. You can revisit them just throughout your life, decade after decade. They always have something new to offer you. It's, it's, it's always uh, fresh in a way. Amen, brother. Um, John, I can't thank you enough for talking to me. It is uh, even better than, than I hoped when, when Paul said that, that you had a, an into the woods story of your own um, so I'm thank you. And I'm so grateful. And I know everyone listening will be uh, grateful too.
0: Well, thanks for the invitation. And I have enjoyed talking to you. It's wonderful to talk to somebody with the depth of knowledge that you have. So it's been fun for me too.
1: We'll so have to you. chat again when I'm all done and I learn more new things. Please I'm, do. Please do. Let's, let's keep it going. Um, uh, well, have a wonderful rest of your day. And uh, I, I look forward to another chat with you at some point. Thank you for listening to Giants in the Sky, how Sondheim and Lapine went into the woods on the Broadway Podcast Network. Look out for episode 30 with Maureen Moore, the witch on the demos. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Sirflin. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty LaPone. This is Lynn manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.